Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hello, friends. Today you'll hear my interview with Tim Vandehey, an award-winning New York Times best-selling writer. But Tim's not just any kind of writer, he's a ghostwriter. And over the past 15 years or so, he's written 55 books, all for people who have a message or a story they want to get out into the world, but who don't have the time or the energy or the writing skills to do it themselves. In other words, a lot like the people that we serve. Tim talks to us about what ghostwriting is, who his client authors are, what the process looks like, and um, including a deep dive into his outlining procedure. And that's something that I've found to be personally very helpful for my own book writing process. We also discuss his book marketing agency, Beast Sellers, what an attention bomb is, and what writers can learn from the now famous selfie of the boy with Justin Timberlake at the Super Bowl. And finally, we finish up with a conversation about why ghostwriters and personal historians need to bring something more than the desire to get paid to the table, that for both industries, we need to bring a sense of mission and service to our clients and to the books that we are producing for them. And by the way, the sound on this episode is a little echoey because I met Tim in person at his co-working office, and you'll hear some point during the interview when a dog makes its appearance. It's a pretty cool place. Tim, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Life Story Coach podcast. Well, thank you. Happy to to be here. Well, why don't you start by telling everybody how you got into this, because it's a pretty interesting story, and um, and then maybe just a little bit about what ghostwriting is, because I think there's an awful lot of people who have a vague understanding but don't understand or don't recognize how pervasive it is, for especially when we're looking at bookshelves and seeing titles by celebrities and, and politicians and assuming that they're the ones who are writing the books. Right. It's, it's kind of a hidden economy. So I'll, I'll address that first um, because it's interesting. Um, I tell people that if you look at the nonfiction shelves, probably 80% of what you see is ghostwritten or co-written, which especially if you get into fields like memoir, self-help, the more famous the person, if they're not famous for being an author, the more likely they are to have used a ghostwriter or co-author. Because they have a platform and they they have an audience, but they don't have any writing ability or they don't have the time or both. So that's where somebody like me comes in. I don't know that my, how I got into this is that interesting a story, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, it was not, nothing fascinating. I was working as a freelancer um, uh, in doing other things, doing advertising, copywriting, and things like that. And I had a client who called me one day and said, Tim, could you write a book for me? And I said, sure, Peter, I can write a book for you. And I hung up the phone and said, oh, God, how do I write a book? Because, you know, that's what you do when you're trying to grow something is you say yes even if you don't know what you're doing, you hang up the phone, you have a small panic attack, and then you figure out how to get it done. And so I wrote the book. Uh, it was called The Brand Called You. It came out back in 1999. Um, it was, in my opinion, terrible. But my name was on it, and I got my first copies when I was in Rome on a trip, which was really cool. The Italian girls thought it was really cool. I was single at the time, so I'm like, I could do this. This is cool. This is like, I'm like, look, this is me. And it just sort of grew from there. I, you know, one book led to another, and then a third with that author, and that third one took off, did really, really well, and got me the, the, got attracted the attention of some agents and so on. It's, I've written 55 plus books since then. So that was 2000, that was nine, that, that, the breakout was probably 2004. Which one was that? The, the breakout, kind of when I started really getting okay. into the book thing full time, it was probably, 20, probably 2004. Right. So. So, and how did you go about, you, you, you went from a career in copywriting, you said. Yeah, yeah. And, and then all of a sudden you're thrust into the world of writing books. They're very, they're two very different creatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you build your skills? How, was it just by doing or? Just by doing it. Yeah. I mean, it was really, it really wasn't that hard. Um, it was just about structure and being organized and then just telling stories. And I was trained as a journalist and ghostwriting is a very journalistic profession. You have to enjoy telling other people's stories and I do, and you have to like research and be good at interviewing and I am. So it was a natural transition. And so when I had people, when the book that my, my, that same client did, he and I did in 2003, uh, took off 
and sold about 60,000 copies, which for a self-published book is very successful. Um, that got a lot of notice. That a lot of notice. I got an agent because of that book. I got in with Mark Victor Hansen, who was one of the co-creators of Chicken Soup for the Soul. Did a book for him, and that just led to referrals and referrals and referrals. And that's how things, you know, that's you know, as you know, that's how things grow. In in any most almost any career, um, one person tells another, tells another, tells another, right. and suddenly you have a base of people referring you business. Uh, so yeah, the, so the transition wasn't really hard. It was actually really easy. It was like I, you know, this this is something that I that I was able to do without a lot of um, because it's journalistic, and I was trained as a journalist, so mm -hmm. it was a natural transition. Mm -hmm. So something that you and I have talked about in previous conversations is, um, you know, what what I as a personal historian do is is the types of book that I write are very different from the types of books that you write right. because the, the fundamental difference is that what you're writing is done for a wider public, for the wider public. So if they're to be commercially published, you publish with a big five. Um, most personal historians, not exclusively, but for the most part, the books that we do are meant, they're legacy projects. So they're meant to be read by family and friends. Right. Um, but we're all trying to create a compelling story, right? right? And the other really big overlap between ghostwriting and what we do is that we are writing somebody else's voice. Um, and something that you had told me about a long time ago in a previous conversation was uh, about the ego. And, and can you address that about how you, you know, most writers sit down and say, I want to write a book, and it is... It's partly to stoke the ego a little bit, but you ha how you have to remove yourself from that as um, somebody well, who's... Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's something... That's I think that's why most writers can't do what you do or what I do. Not that they don't have the skill. Um, I'm sure a lot of writers have the skill to be a personal historian or a ghost, um, but they can't set aside their own egos. And it's not even so much... It's not even just a matter of ego. You have to get off on telling somebody else's story. You have to really enjoy and find um, a sense of service and a sense of purpose in telling other people's stories. It has to be something that's, that's, that's really in you, that, that, that is, that's a higher purpose than getting your name on a book. I get my names on some books. I get a with credit on some, some of the books that I write. Others I don't. Um, sometimes, sometimes that's something I negotiate. Sometimes I just come out and flat, flat out say, I shouldn't be on your book because the person is a coach or they're trying to establish themselves as, as a, a thought leader and it doesn't really look good for a thought leader to have with Tim Van de Hey on their book mm -hmm. because then that creates some doubt as to whether or not they really are the thought leader because, well, did you really create all your ideas or did that writer over there uh, help you create them? So, but the, uh, the general idea, yeah, is you have, to, you have to not just suppress your ego, but you have to enjoy, I think, and take pleasure and satisfaction of telling other people's stories you know, mm -hmm. in order to do this. You you're, you're kind of the conduit for getting yeah, stories out. Yeah, that's why I say it's journalistic because journalists, journalists don't tell their own story. Unless you're writing an op-ed, which is your opinion, um, you're writing other people's news. You're writing you know, features or news on other people. So it's the same kind of thing. But I think the difference with journalism is you still, if you were doing straight journalism, you have your writer's voice that's coming through. Right. So right, how right. does the writer's voice play into what the kinds of books that you do? Do you try to do you try to craft a different sound to the writer's voice based on each of the, yeah. the authors that you're working with? Yeah, I, I, it, it's it's tricky because it it's funny because you, know, I, you you can't really say this to the author that you're working with because they think you're going to come up with the voice how they with a voice that they think reflects themselves the way they speak or think or write today, and that's not what. I want, and it's really not what they want, even though they don't know it. What I try to come up with is, a, is an idealized version of that person's voice. I don't want to write the way they write because they're not writers. I don't want to speak the way they speak because nobody wants to write the way they speak, generally. Even dialogue in a, in a film or a play is stylized, it's idealized. Nobody, you know, nobody says yeah, the, quality of, the quality of mercy <laughs> is not strained in real life. Um, so, so you you try to get to know the you get to know the person, get to know their values and things like that. But I'm not trying to mimic their speech patterns necessarily. Um, I might if their speech patterns are very distinctive. Most people's aren't. So it's really about who is the person, what are the, what are their values, what do they care about, what are they trying to say, what does this material mean to them, and then kind of craft an idealized voice, so a better version of themselves, a better version of how they think and speak. Um, 
that's just a matter of craft and practice. There's nothing, there, I, I couldn't teach somebody how to do that other than to say what I just said, which is get to know the author. Get to know who they are, what they care about, what their values are, um, you know, why the material matters to them, and then just apply your craft to it. And I've really almost never had any pushback in 50 plus books. I've had a few passages where authors have said, oh, I would never say that. Okay, well, then we'll fix it, no problem. You know, so and occasionally I've put words in authors' mouths that I thought were that they would like, and something usually something provocative, and they go, "Oh no, 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 I can't say that." Okay, but overall, as a as a as a, a whole body of work, I've never really gotten a lot of pushback on <clears throat> on um, an author saying, well, "This doesn't sound like me at all. None of this book sounds like me." I've never had that happen because I think people, the, off, the authors, they like. Being, they like perceiving themselves in that idealized voice, so they read it and they go, "I sound brilliant!" Like, "Yes, you do!" You know, in the back of my head, I'm going, "All right, you know." I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not, you know, trying to give them a false persona, but I'm trying to give them a version of themselves of how they, of their voice that is elevated. Right, and that's what I tell my clients. You know, when I sit down for the first initial meeting and and we talk about the process that we, that we'll go through, I tell them that I try to write in the voice that they would write in if they were writers. Right. Which they're not. That's why they're hiring me. Sure. And that's why your people are hiring you. Yep. Right? Yep. Um, well, that actually leads me into um, something that really fascinates me, which is part of your process. Why don't you start by telling a little bit about your process, but I really want to um, kind of drill down a bit on the outlining section. Mm -hmm. So tell us what, um, just walk us through what a typical, the stages in a, um, a ghostwritten book would be. Well, I don't know about everybody's process. This is my process. This is for you, so, yes. Um, I am, and I, I've always believed this, non, that non, you know, just do nonfiction. Don't do fiction at all. Um, most Fiction writers don't want ghostwriters because fiction is very, very personal, even more so than I think than nonfiction. Um, so I think most nonfiction books are built on structure. Structure is everything because most nonfiction, with the exception of memoir in some cases, is a teaching medium. If you're writing a nonfiction book, you are trying to teach someone something. Business book, spiritual book, health and wellness book, I don't care what it is, you're trying to teach someone something. So I think of it as it has, you know, just like a class has a syllabus a book has to have structure and outline. So I always, st you, you start with with concept and brainstorming like anything. You start by getting on the phone with the author and just talking through ideas. Um, I just think in terms of story. So I'm always thinking in terms of story and structure and concept. What concept am I gonna hang my hat on with this book? Um, and um, once that's done, then it's really about outlining. So yeah, so I, I do a two-tiered outlining process. So the first part is once we get past um, you know, what's the book going to be about? What's the, what's the overall concept of the book? Um, and what's the very broad structure? Are we going to have parts one, part two, part three? Are we going to have, is it going to be a steps book? Is it going to be just seven or eight or nine chapters in, some, in just kind of a free-flowing form? Then I'll put together a rough outline. So wait, let me interrupt for a second. Go ahead. This is all um, done... This is all this done, this is all done remotely. Just over phone conversations. Over phone conversations. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, so I usually come with a rough outline, and the rough outline is probably going to be it might be five six pages of bullets and descriptions of things. It might be three or four, and then once that rough outline is nailed down, um, and the author agrees, yes, this is this is this looks good. This is a good direction, a good structure, and I'll throw in ideas for you know for for naming things and for naming conventions and for. Um, you know, how I think the book should be, should be built. It's really a blueprint. Um, so this is the beginnings of that blueprint. Um, that is a big dog. Look at that. <laughs> We're um, sitting in a co-working office and yes, somebody who brought their dog to work. That is a big dog. <laughs> um, and so, you know, so once, you know, once that outline is agreed on, um, then that's gonna be the base for my usual, the face-to-face the -face meetings. So I'll usually travel to where the author is. Um, I've gotta do one next month in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, that author's got the outline, the, the rough outline in hand. He's pretty much signed off on it. So I'll go out there. We'll talk through that outline through two or three days of recorded interviews, just like what we're doing now. And I'll turn that in. Then we'll get those transcribed. And then those recorded interviews will become outline number two, which is the comprehensive outline, which is basically the whole book point by point, bullet by bullet. And that outline might be 30 or 40 pages. 
And that is the part that I found very fascinating when you and I have talked about this before. Um, and it's something that, so if, if you're doing a legacy book, you know, a personal history book, mm -hmm. generally what you're doing is you're, you have um, regular, you know, weekly or bi-weekly meetings. Right. So you don't have, you don't start the book um, after you have this mass of, of content. Right. You're working on it usually, or at least that's how I do it. You're working on it as you go along. Right. But there are times, you know, I've, I had a, um, I had a client come to me. Um, from out of town and we did three days of interviews. So I did have all of that material and I think that was right when you and I had talked about it and I thought, uh -huh. well, this outlining thing I've never tried before, especially the, the really comprehensive outline. Mm -hmm. so, so tell us a little bit more about that because I think that's something that um, can really help, especially if you are maybe starting off and you're not terribly confident in, in, um, in writing a book length manuscript. Mm -hmm. Um, to find the structure, I think outlining can be very beneficial. That is that is scaffolding for when you are either unsure or you are um, on a ridiculous deadline, like the one I was telling you about before we started this. Um, I've got a book due March 1st, and I have got a ton of work to do on it. The only thing keeping me sane in writing that book is the fact that I have a point-by-point -point outline for each chapter. So I, can, I don't have to worry about organization. I don't have to worry about, if I need a quote, I can go find it. I've got somebody who did research for me and gave me a 30, 40 page research packet in advance. Um, so I can write, I can just write to the outline. And just to, um, just to, because March 1st isn't going to mean anything, um, for people oh, right, listening, right, right. that's three weeks from now. No, this is so, March 1st. This is February 23rd. That's, oh yeah, wait, that's, no, that's that is, uh, five. That is five, what, uh, six <laughs> days from now. So what Tim had told me before we started rolling on the, on the recording was that he had, basically you're doing the entire book in three weeks. You're writing yes, it in three weeks. Which I would not recommend and would never do, except uh, this is something that I... It's for an author I've done three books for before. This will probably be a very successful book, and timing is critical. So I said, okay, let's get it done, and we'll let the chips fall where they may later on. It'll be worth it, but it's going to be it's going to be rough. Yeah. Uh, but the the outline is keeping me afloat. Uh, so for anybody who you know, for this, the 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 beauty of it is you put in the time. I've had I've had books. I had a book I did that came out. It was called Lovability, and it was a business book that was published with Greenleaf Book Group. Um, that came out I think in April of 2017. And um, the outline for that book ended up being almost 80 pages. That was the book. I mean, writing the book was easy after that outline. All I did was, I mean, there was so much material there. I just, it was like paint by numbers. It was just filling in the blanks because the guy gave me so much material and insisted on so much detail in the outline. By the time he finally approved the bloody thing, the book was practically written. Um, but in general, if you have that kind of detail, all you're doing is, I mean, it's not as simple as just saying fill in the blanks, of course, but you're, you're, all you're pretty much doing is writing from point to point to point. Now, I always tell people, it's like you can't, you know, you're going to create extemporaneously as you're writing. All writers do. So I never assume that that comprehensive outline, even if it's 40 pages, is going to be every point I'm going to write about. In the process, I will choose to skip over some points if they're not working. I will rearrange points if I'm flowing in a certain way, and I'm like, that next point really doesn't fit very well with the, with the, the feel I've created, so I'm gonna skip over it, and I'm gonna shuffle these points, and I'll put that one two more paragraphs down. And I'll add stuff if something, if, if, a, if a book is topical, um, like the one I was telling you I'm writing all about the, you know, the, the Hollywood sexual harassment thing. Uh, if a new story comes up in the news, I might slot that in. I found a quote this morning uh, that I may slot into the book that I'm working on that's due March 1st because it was really relevant. So you'll adapt, but that, that long outline gets me 90% of the way there, which is enough for me to really feel like I can sit down, I know what the author wants, I present it to the author, say here's 35 pages, bullet by bullet, this is exactly what's going to go into the book, give me a sign off or tell me if there's something missing, if they sign off I know, awesome, I'm good to go then I can start writing and I can write at a fairly fast pace because all that, all of that work makes the writing faster and easier. It's still hard work, but it's, yeah, it's very organized. So that's, you, 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 it, it, will, it will up your productivity if you can manage to do that. Mm -hmm. And is there, um, is there much passing back and forth of the outline before the, author, before the narrator uh, signs off on it? That depends on the individual. Generally with, with my world, no. Because one of the reasons that I don't do what 
you do in personal personal history writing, go back and forth, you know, at week, you know, weekly meetings, because the people I work with simply can't. So right now, I'm working on four projects right now with a Hollywood producer, with a guy who runs a the Chattanooga book, which is a guy who runs a company that invents new products uh, for TV and, and it's for selling, you know, like selling direct to TV and things like that, like as seen on TV things, and um, for a um, former NFL player and for uh, two women running a huge branding agency out of New York, right? All these people are insanely busy. So they don't have a lot of time to look stuff over and they don't have a lot of time to give me. So like that two or three days I was mentioning that I get when we talk through face-to-face -face and we record, that's all the FaceTime I usually get with somebody. So we have to make that, we have to make that time productive. So we'll sit down for eight hours a day for three days in a row, which is exhausting, as you know, um, and bust through the whole thing because that's all the time I'm probably going to get with them. I might, we might get some phone call check-ins, but we're not going to get weekly meetings or anything like that. People, they're just too busy. That's so interesting. Well, okay, and let's, uh, let's jump off a little bit and tell people um, who are the kinds of uh, folks that are coming to you saying, I want to have a ghostwritten book, because it's obviously very different from the kinds of people who are sure, coming sure. to your story. Absolutely, yeah, I mean, it's, a different, it's a different world. I know. So these are people who are writing, you know, in your work, the pe people want to write their book to preserve a family story and preserve a legacy. Which is awesome. I mean, I, I've thought about doing that for my own parents. Maybe I'll have you do it. So there we go. Okay. We need the need, we'll the, talk. need the outside the outside view of my bizarre family. Everybody's family is bizarre. Um, but so for me, mostly it is um, it's people who feel like they have a story to tell, um, and they're doing it. They're writing the book for a reason, either to build their personal brand, build their business. Um, they're you know they have a they have a personal mission, like the like in the Hollywood sexual harassment book is. You know, it's leveraging a, it's leveraging a, an active story and a very popular story, but it's also about changing the changing the discussion about uh, men and sexuality and how what it means to be a man in this culture. So that's part of the you know that's important. So, but you know, so that but like I said Hollywood right now Hollywood producer that's a book that's going to come out with Simon and Schuster, the ladies in uh, the branding agency. That's a Harper Collins book. So I get people who are running companies, I get CEOs and executives, I get professional athletes, I get. Um, Producers, I get um, uh, scientists and doctors. Um, I get religious leaders. So I'm getting a lot of people who are, um, you know, they're 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 in a leadership position. They're leading a company. They're leading a culture. They are in a position to try to inspire people. There's a guy here at WeWork who um, I, I'm dying to write his book. He's a paralyzed um, CrossFit athlete. Wow. Who is um, an amazing guy, paralyzed from the waist down. You can see pictures on Instagram of him d doing the rope climb with his wheelchair attached to his legs for extra weight. It's ridiculous. His arm is bigger than my body. But you know, but that's the, so that's the kind of person that he wants to build his brand. He wants to grow his brand so he can so he can help more disabled people um, do more things with their lives. So. Yeah, so it's a lot of people who want to be who want to put themselves in a position as thought leaders. Um, getting ready to do a book for an educator um, who was who was the CNN and NBC guy in education for a couple of years about how to radically radically reform the U.S. school system. You know, um, so things like that. So they're they're people who are in a position to want to elevate their brand or be thought leaders typically, or they want to grow, they want to use the book as a platform for their business. Mm -hmm. And these are people obviously that recognize the value of having a book and recognize the fact that they're not the one to write their own book. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's one of the values in working with, a lot of people I work with are in business and they recognize the value of hiring an expert um, because they're not, they're, they know they're not. And they also recognize the value of marketing, which is if they, if they try to go after a publishing deal, that's pretty handy because they know they have to have some sort of platform to get a, a publisher. And is that part of your ghostwriting service or is that something separate if, if they want some marketing help from you? Well, that's why I started. Thank you. It was a nice segue into, uh, so that's why I started my, my other company, which is called Beast Sellers, B-E-A-S-T, Sellers. Um, which is just you know a play on words because we couldn't find anything else that wasn't, where the web address wasn't taken. Um, that's why I started that with my, my partner, Naren Ariel, who runs Mascot Books out of Washington, D.C. Um, because I had lots and lots of authors. So I do book proposals, which you know you have to have to, to sell a nonfiction book, do a proposal first. 
And Before shop, the book is written. You shop that to agents to get an agent, and then the agent shops it to publishers. And then if they, once the publisher buys the book, you write the full manuscript. Um, and I had a lot of authors I did proposals for, in some cases books, who would, I'd, I'd hear from them six months later, and they say, Tim, I cannot find anybody to help me with my marketing who's not trying to rip me off. You know, you know publicists want $15,000 a month on a retainer to, mm. to even talk to me. And social media companies want this. And so I saw a need there. And my friend and I started this agency last year to try to help authors market their books. And it's kind of interesting the way you guys have it structured because it's a la carte services, right? It's a la carte. Can, yeah. But the website is different, actually, since the one you see, even the last time you looked at it, we literally changed the business model. I wrote the first proposal with a new business model yesterday. Oh. Yeah, because I realized that authors unknown authors who don't have a huge platform and aren't branded as authors, which a lot of people are, you know, a lot of the people I work with, they're not branded as authors. They might be branded as business people or athletes or whatever, um, actors, or they need something else to get them off, off of the starting line because other, because the incremental stuff, unless they already, unless they have a, you know, a million Twitter followers or something like that, they need something to get the world's attention. Otherwise, nobody notices their book. Nobody's going to notice their website or anything. So we came up with this other with this alternative business model, which we're just launching, which I think is going to be much more successful, which is everything starts with what I call an attention bomb, which is you do something, some big, audacious, provocative thing. It could be an event. It could be a video. It could be a series of tweets. It could be a launch party. It could be an op-ed. It could be anything but something big and brash and bold that makes the whole world say, what? Oh my gosh, I, you know, makes them stop and take notice. Because without that, it's really hard to get any traction as an author unless you have a gigantic platform, which most authors don't. They're just trying to build one. And so this attention bomb, it's um, this model you think is more appropriate for people that are already in the public's eye uh -oh. or for, every, for anybody? It's, it's, you know, it's really for anybody because... It is really hard to sell books. Really hard. I mean, Devon Franklin, who you know I did The Weight with, which was a New York Times bestseller, we did a book that came out last year. He's the one I'm doing the book on sexual har harassment in Hollywood with. And, and wait, can, I'm going to interrupt you. Can you tell the story about um, how, uh, with the, he, how he sent that book, The Oprah Story? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, you mean the pr produced by Faith and how that led to yes. The Weight? Yeah, of yes. course. So, yeah, so so one of so one of my one of my core principles. In fact, I'll I'll, I'll I'll shamelessly plug the book that I wrote for B sellers, which is called How to Sell a Crap Load of Books. Uh, I was which just about, about to get which to is, that which is because on, I think it sounds like you needed a second edition now. If you're I, I do, I, I do, I do, because right. that's that's a fun that's a one of our new fundamental principles. It's probably the core the core of everything we're doing now. Mm -hmm. um, so and, and uh, just a, a, I'm gonna. I'm gonna interject something in there. How to sell a crap load of books is a is a it's a great book. It is a great primer on for somebody who, especially for people like the people that I work with that want to self publish. Yeah. So occasionally I will get legacy projects that they want to put it out in for the wider public. Sure. And it's very much a step by step manual. Um, you you focus a lot on the platform and how um, how you have to do it ahead of time, like so much further ahead of time than people realize, you know, start building that audience. And um, just this is an aside, but one of the one of the men that I'm working with on two different books right now, he does want one as strictly a legacy project, but the other one he wants to find a publisher for. Mm -hmm. And I gave him a copy of the book. And, you know, I was I was, uh, you know, talking to him a lot about platform building. And he recognized, you know, he's an older guy and he recognized he has no interest in doing this. Yeah, like he doesn't yeah. want to go out and do, like you talk a little bit about the local, you know, shoot for the local venues, you know, to get some publicity with your local newspapers first. Like, don't don't shoot for the stars first. Um, and, you know, blog posting, that kind of things. And he recognized that he's not interested in that. So that has changed the, the, the that has shifted the, um, the, the type of book that we're going to write, which sure. was incredibly helpful. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that I, I encounter this all the time, constantly which is in my ghostwriting work and in my work with bestsellers, which is authors oh, tremendously underestimate how hard it is to sell books. And I'll, and I'll get back to your question about the Oprah thing in a minute, but um, one of the reasons we did this was for that exact reason, because I have seen so many authors crash and burn with great books, 
great books, great intentions, great energy, great ideas, but they come into it thinking that the world is going to be the path through the door because they've written a really good book. I mean, I've got books out now that are, they're terrific books on the page. They're great books, but the branding was botched or they, the author didn't leverage their biggest asset, which any author's biggest asset is their current network, the people that they know right now, not the people they could go out and find and grab. They ought to get the audience they can build. That's any author's biggest, biggest asset is the people you know today who love you, care about you, like your work, etc. Authors always forget about that. Because they're always looking at the horizon instead of looking at what's right in front of them. And most books tank. And, most, and one of the reasons most books tank is because it's really hard. So, so to get to the about Devon Franklin, so we did a book called The Hollywood Commandments that came out last year, last fall. It did okay, but we were coming off a New York Times bestseller. Devon has a great platform. And the book, it spent one week on the publisher's weekly bestseller list, and they kind of went, not, it didn't die. It's still doing okay, but it didn't take off. This is a person who has everything in place. He had all the tool, all the all the building blocks in place to have another New York Times bestseller that sold another hundred thousand copies, and it didn't happen. It is hard to sell books, so that's one of the reasons that we did what we did. And um, so, you know, when I wrote How to Sell a Crap Load of Books, one of the principles in there, and again, we're going to have to go back and revise it around this whole attention bomb thing, because I really do think that is the key to everything. Um, the one big thing that makes everybody take notice. It's your, it's your, your left shark at the, you know, at the Super Bowl. It's, it's that one thing that that kid who with Justin Timberlake went into the, into the stands and the kid got the selfie during the last Super Bowl. You know, that's the one thing. Like, everybody knows who that kid is now, right? Because of one moment. He, he's more famous than most people in the country. Now. It's because that one stupid moment when he took the selfie and looked around like a big dork. It was adorable, right? So... So one of the principles in the book that is critical is the idea that authors have to build a really strong brand because half of your opportunities to promote yourself and your book are going to come from things that are unintentional, that are accidental. They're not going to come as a result of you sending out an email or sending out a press release or doing any sort of pitch. They're going to come because somebody stumbles across your book or your website and goes, oh, well, this person looks like a player person looks like a pro. I want to do an interview or I want to buy this book or I want to have this person speak. And most authors drop the ball terribly on this, especially if they're self-published, but even if they're not. Because even if, so if you have a publisher, you might have a beautiful book cover. Publishers tend to put up no, self-published book covers often stink. It's very hit or miss. Uh, right? Very hit or miss. If you have a publisher, odds are you're going to have, you're going to have a good book cover, although it's not a guarantee. Probably designed by a professional, going to be good. The, the, the publisher is not designing your website. Most author websites are terrible, right? So authors need to brand themselves um, in a way, it's what I call passive branding, which is, you know, that you need to be ready, you need to be, put yourself in a position where if someone comes across your brand and your book when you are not around to say, hi, here I am, they look at you and go, oh, okay, this is a person to be taken seriously. This is a person who's, you know, even if they have, they're not gonna have read your work, but if you have a, a great website that's slick and professional and makes a great impression and a great book cover, they go, wow, that's, that's a really beautiful book. That makes a big difference. So what happened with Devon was Devon Franklin and I, back in 2011, published a book called Produced by Faith. It was with Simon and & Schuster. Um, it was a really great book, but it was a first-time book. And I, like to, I, always, I like to say that um, the success of future books is, um, or almost always, is almost always built on the ashes of an author's first book. Okay, because most first books bomb, and one of the reasons, most, two, the two big reasons, most first books bomb is because uh, number one, the author doesn't know anything about marketing the book, promoting the book, and thinks it's going to be much easier than it is. It's ten times harder than you than they think. I had Anthony Sullivan, the OxyClean guy. Um, did a book for him that came out last year as well called You Get What You Pitch For. And this is a guy who, who sells as a living. After the book came out, he said, Tim, and his, I'm not going to dare to do his British accent because that would sound stupid. He said, Tim, this is the hardest thing I've ever, sell, I've ever tried to sell. And this is a guy who used to sell mops on the street, on the mar the street markets in England wow. in the rain. This is the hardest thing he's ever done. Seriously? That's hard. Um, so anyway, back to so Produced by Faith came out, and it did... It did okay. It sold probably 10,000 copies the first year. You know, um, we had gotten a decent, uh, I think, $100,000 advance, so we didn't earn out, didn't, didn't come close to earning out. Um, you know, and 
the, the book was kind of limped along. So it, you know, we thought, okay, well, I, I thought Devon, well, Devon and I are never going to write another book together, and you know, that was that. Well, in 2012, a year after the book came out, in fact, just after I moved here to Kansas City, um, Devon had failed to respond to the inquiry of a Hollywood publicist. Didn't return the phone call. Big no-no, right? So as an apology, he sent a signed copy of Produced by Fate to this publicist. Now at the time, Devon had a great website up about the book and about himself. Very slick, very professional. It's also a really good book. The publicist read the book, checked out Devon's website, loved everything she saw, and she also happened to be really good friends with Oprah Winfrey's publicist. So she sent the book <laughs> to Oprah's nice. publicist. Oprah's publicist read the book. Now also this points to the value of write a really great book. But that's not the only thing that mattered here. It was the brand as a whole. It was Devon's website and every, it was the whole message and his personal brand that he'd built up through speaking and video when you went to YouTube when you found him and he was polished and professional and things like that. And so Oprah's publicist read the book, saw the website, saw Devon speaking, and went, wow, I love to send it up to Oprah. Next thing you know, he's on Super, Super Soul Sunday, which is Oprah's big, you know, and produced by Faith. Now, it didn't, make, it didn't turn it into a bestseller, but it was in the 40,000s, I think, on Amazon. The day he went on, it ended up in the top 500 on Amazon. So it really boosted sales um, enough where we got a second book deal in 2014, I think, for the book became The Weight which was a, ended up becoming a New York Times bestseller and is still, uh, has probably sold more than 200,000 copies by now. Wow. And that's the weight, W-A-I-T. W-A-I-T, And I'll yeah. put, um, I'll put uh, links in the show notes to all of these books right. that you're talking about. Yeah, so, so and you know, and, that, and the weight did well, and that led to Hollywood Commandments, and so, you know, Debbie Devon, a player, and this, you know, the, this, this next book, which I think the working title is The Truth About Men, which is kind of scary. I don't want people to know too much about us. Um, <laughs> the secret will be out. <laughs> the secret's long out. Everybody knows pretty much what men are. Um, but, you know, so, so the point was that led, you know, that, that in part passive branding. It wasn't entirely. It was also a great book. Right. Um, but the passive branding aspect of that, um, how, you know, have a great package, have a great book, have a great website, right. have, you know, have a, have a body of, of, your appearances and things like that online, where people when, pe when people encounter you when you're not around to excuse me to promote yourself, they're impressed, and that made all the difference. That has changed his career and mine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's you know that's really where personal history and what you do very much diverges. Yes. Yeah. Except that um, I and you know colleagues that I've spoken with, there's always bleed over. There are all you know I've been approached by people and I have worked with people to do books that are not just strictly you know family history or or their life story. Mm -hmm. They have a greater message that they want to get out in the world. Sure. Often it has something to do with spirituality or with you know a message of hope. And in, in you know in, in one colleague did a book for somebody who um, there was a murder in the family and a murderer in the family but they wanted to take the message out in the world like what happens afterwards and how they can bring hope to people wow. so that's that's the kind that's of thing deep. yeah it was very deep um and as personal historians you're going to get that knock on the door at some point where it's going to be something where somebody is going to say hey i want to do something that's not just for family and friends oh sure so it's good to you know it's good to have a little um a little knowledge, so absolutely. Can, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, writing writing a book is a dream for so many people. You know, I mean, that's you know, that's that's where that's that's the good side and the the, the dangerous side as far as people getting into the industry and being taken advantage of. Which is one of the reasons we started Be Sellers because I got tired of authors being taken advantage of because there's so much emotion around either side of it, whether it's the family legacy book side or the ghostwriting side. There's this whole. It's. I, I still think it's funny. I say this all the time. I, it, it, I think it's. 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 Uh, it's interesting and terribly ironic that in a culture that is so digital now, this collection of dead trees with ink on them between covers still carries so much power and prestige. Even in that, it doesn't have the same power and prestige as an ebook. Oh, I, mean, I, I absolutely. The agree idea with you. of the, I mean the emotional appeal of somebody saying I'm going to write a book that talks about my childhood and how our family developed. I mean, whether it's that or I'm going to write a book about how I started my business and built this. There is so much emotional freight to be carried by that. There's so much emotional emotion behind the desire to do it. 
that's you know that's a big that that's a big responsibility what we do. It is. A, I agree. It's a huge responsibility. I agree. And I tr I try to treat it like that. I tell people all the time. I say every book. It's especially true for what you do, but I say this to my clients too. I say every book is personal. I don't care what kind of book it is. I don't care the the book I did for the book I that I mentioned, Lovability, the one that I wrote the eighty page outline was for a guy in, in Silicon Valley, runs an extremely successful software company. And it's a, it's a little bit of a dry read because it's very, um, I think it's an interesting book, but it's still, a, it's, a, it's an organizational development book. It's, you know, it's a little bit dry because um, it's very how-to, but it's still personal for him because it's how he built this thing that's now his life's work. Right. So every book is personal. Right. Some and people are burying themselves. I mean, they're to you yeah. know to a greater extent or a lesser it's extent. It's a dream for a lot of people. A lot right. of people. One of their bucket list items is write a book. Very much. So. And I think you, ha as writers, we have to respect that right. and treat that with tremendous respect and take it seriously, whatever the content is. And I think, and that, and again, that goes back to why not everybody can do what we do because you have to make it about the other person. Mm -hmm. You have to come into this from a position of service, of delighting in helping someone achieve that dream. If you can't do that, you can't do what we do. Right. And, you, can go and write your own, you can go write your own stuff, be my guest, right. have, have it knock yourself out, but you can't do this. Yeah. And you're, you know, if you're doing something that's family history or, or life story history, you know, you're bearing witness to, to their history, to their memories. I bet you have heard some hairy stuff. Oh gosh. It's, it's incredible. And I think it has to do you know, most of the people that I work with, not all of them, but most of them are 70 plus. Sure. Um, you know, my oldest was a 99-year-old woman. I've had people in their 40s too, but for the most part, they're retired age. Yeah, yeah. And um, They have the time I've, and they have the money and they have the inclination. They're thinking about it now. They Exactly. Or their children are, you know, their children are in their 50s maybe or 60s and they're saying, hey, we need to we get, get these stories, stories we, can. Yeah, we can. Exactly. Sure, exactly. But they're... Um, I, I think that generation, that, that generation that's a little bit older than us, um, they can be incredibly, incredibly open and trusting. And I thank goodness, you know, thank goodness, because you have to have a very trusting relationship with your personal historian, mm -hmm. because otherwise, you're, you know, there's nothing that's going to come alive in the book. Right. Um, but something else, you know, you're talking about how. You know, the book is out there. The books that you do are out there in the world. And the author, no matter what type of content they're, they're putting out there, it is them. It is part of their identity. Mm -hmm. um, the books that we do as personal historians, obviously they're not widely distributed like what you have. But I just had one of my clients um, tell me recently, he invited me to his 80th birthday party. It was, it was great. It was wonderful. So That's cool. Uh, yeah, it was really cool. But he told me, you know, we had ordered quite a few copies. He had he was giving copies out to anybody who said, you know, I'd love to read your story. And there were a lot of people. He's a very lovable guy. He's got a wide circle of friends. He's very extroverted. And so he told me at the party that he had been talking to one woman who said, oh, yeah, my daughter loved your book. So you, in other words, you never know whether you're doing these really small, you know, Printed and bound with really no publishing. It's you know because publishing is by definition you know you're you're trying to publicize. But if you're just doing legacy projects that that you're that you're producing the book for the people, those books. I mean they're they're it's a it's a hard artifact, right? It yeah. can end up in anybody's hands. Yeah. So it goes back to what you're saying. Like we have we have a duty to present the people in a way that is responsible and um, fulfilling for them. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, I. I I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, the attitude I've always taken is, again, apart aside from that, it's personal. Is words change the world, right? Books have power. Words have power. And you really don't know. Yeah, not the uh, the odds of a personal legacy book or one of my books going out in the world and and changing something meaningful um, in a big way, probably not. But I have had many, many, many people who've approached me sometimes about reading, about doing their own books, you know, because this is all, you know, this is all referral-based. People read a book. A lot of Devon Franklin's books have led to other, other projects for me. They've read, people have read his stuff and want me to do their book. But I've had a lot of people come tell me they've, they've seen one of the books I've done and that it changed their life mm -hmm. um, or that it made them want to be authors or it made them realize oh, I could do a book too. And that means a lot. So you never know. That's why you have to. Yeah. You have to. You have to. You have to leave it all on the floor, as they say in basketball, because you really don't know when you put words out there, even if it's a family legacy book that might only have a hundred copies printed. 
you really don't know what right. the potential of it is of it is to, uh, for it to touch somebody and change somebody's life, make them want to be a writer, maybe something like that. Um, Exactly, so. and that's a message that I try to, you know, for the people that come into it, maybe because they're adult children, want to have the books done, and the storytellers are a little bit hesitant. They think, you know, it's just my life. Everybody thinks that their life is ordinary because it's their own life. Well, because they were there. Right, so, exactly. Yeah, so it seems every day. It is, by definition, for them, uh -huh. but not for the generations that are going to follow. And that's what I try to, you know, I try to get them to realize that, you know, they're giving a gift by giving their stories. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we're, we're lucky to be able to help people give that gift, you know, put that gift out in the world. Oh, my gosh, yeah. yeah. As, as busy as I am, I wouldn't trade this for anything. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And I work for myself for, you know, 20, 22 years now. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't, I was no way I'd ever go back. No way. Well, okay, so I know you're very busy. Why don't we can wrap up, but um, any advice that you can give to people who, you know, maybe they're into personal history, but maybe they're thinking about trying to get into something closer to ghostwriting, um, any organizations that they should look at, any books that they should read, or any advice in general? Uh, there, really aren't, there really aren't any organizations. Um... You know, ghostwriters are notoriously reclusive lot, except for me, who has, you know, verbal diarrhea. Um, uh, organization, yeah, yeah, there really isn't a lot of source material. That's why it's kind of, it's kind of an opaque profession, really. Um, it's the, sort of the CIA of writing. It's kind of cool that way. It's kind of, it's kind of sexy. Um, I have a code name and everything. It's, you don't want, you know, it's obscene. You do? No, you don't want to know that. No, I don't. I'm kidding. Uh, but I fooled you that. That was cool. Um, no, I, the, the, the two pieces of advice I give to people primarily who want to call themselves ghostwriters, assuming that they already know how to write, are first of all, call yourself one. Because there is no qualification. There's no test. Um, there's a lot, but there's a lot of interest. People really, really want There's a lot of people out there who want to write books and don't know how to write. Um, you know, owners of businesses, things like that. If you want to be a ghostwriter, just call yourself one. Put up a website, have a business card, and just say, I'm a ghostwriter. Um, That's wonderfully simple. It's very simple. Yeah. The, other thing, uh, the other thing is that a lot that um, writers in, you know, in your profession need, and they, they need it even more so, I think, in mine, is become a really good interviewer. Work on your interview skills. Because, um, especially with what I do, you have very limited time. And you need to make that interview, you need to rock that interview, you need to make it work, and you need to make it productive. You know, that's a, that's a really important skill. Um, it's very hard to do if you get, once you get it right, it's the core of everything that I do, is being able to interview, whether it's on the phone or face-to-face. -face. And I think that's something a lot more writers could work on because it requires listening, and most writers would rather talk, or they'd rather write, they'd rather have the voice be theirs. So interview skills are absolutely critical, and I, I think the adjunct to that, and it's funny to say, but it's really true, is develop really great phone skills, because you're going to be doing a lot of your interviewing and a lot of your prospecting on the phone. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. You, won't hear, you won't hear that from much from people. You won't hear that at all from people talking about writing, especially talking about, about ghosting or really anything. But develop fantastic phone skills. Become great on the phone, because, oh my God, I mean, the people, the people I know who are great on the phone, um, not only do they get more work because people talk to them just when they're prospecting and they're, they're charismatic on the phone and they just blow people away, but your phone interviewing, can if you, if you crush your phone interviews, you're going to save yourself more time, you're going to save your clients more time, you're going to get work done faster. I mean, it is, it is as the, probably the most underrated skill, I think, in, in the world of nonfiction writing or journalism or ghostwriting is become, become a great um, phone interviewer and a great, just become great on the phone, period. Develop your phone skills. That's great advice, something I would have never thought I of. know, but I, yeah. I thought about it a while ago. I thought, oh my God, nobody talks about that. Right. So there you are. Right. And I'm thinking about my kids who have <clears throat> zero phone skills because it's all texting. Because it's all texting. I mean, that doesn't work. Yeah. That does not work for what we do. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Um, t you told us a little bit about what you're working on. Any other projects that you want to mention? Titles that we oh should look out for? God, there are so many. <laughs> it you, never you stops. Did, I think was it just last year um, that you did? Uh, it was more of a memoir type for the Wombell lingerie Ronda, woman for Rhonda Shear. Yes. Yeah, Rhonda Shear's just book. Yeah. Give us just a bullet point on that. Um, that was called Up All Night. Uh, I love that book. That's one. Of, see, that's an example of somebody who had, who has the platform, but whose book has been 
it's struggled because she's not thought of as an author. Having an author brand is really important. So, but she's still. We, I love the book. And it's called Up All Night. Um, f- let's see. From um, la- let's see. From Hollywood bombshell to lingerie mogul. Life lessons from an accidental feminist. Um, and Great I, subtitle. Thank you. And I love the book. And uh, yeah, so she, she was she was famous for being on the USA Up All Night back in the nineties. The one of those late night B movie shows, and now she's awesome. She's got a lingerie company out in Florida. She's amazing, and we're going to do a second book. I think that's actually probably, hopefully, this year we're going to get a, a major publisher. She wants to actually a book about um, women and healthy body image. Oh, great! Which is a cool subject, and as a father of two daughters, I approve. <clears throat> Though I think the title of that book is going to be unmentionable. Not, not, not that I'm that's, not going to mention the title. That's going to be the title. <laughs> Well, because it's, she Gosh. sells underwear, so you know, right. unmentionables. So right. it's a it's a pun thing. No, no, that already. I had five books come out last year. Six books come out last year. Wow! It was an insane year. Wow! Um, one you of were our, the productivity king. One of them actually just won an Axiom Award, which was really cool. Congratulations! Yeah. Which one is it, that? Uh, it was called the Inversion Factor, which I hate the title, but I didn't come up with the title. It was with MIT Press. It was on the aren't the Internet of Things, and it won an Axiom Award for a bronze medal for business process, the business process category. It just I just found out about that on Monday, so. That was thank you. That was kind of cool. So no, so there's the the the, the, the one with Devon Franklin. I think it's going to be called The Truth About Men, and I think that'll be out in September 16th. I think they said is the pub date. That's the one where I'm cranking on. In fact, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to go work on that book. <laughs> right. um, and I think everything else is 2019. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've got anything else coming out this year. Although I'm not 100 percent sure. There's one. There's one that I'm working on now that it's actually I can't that might come out this year that I can't talk about. That's, that's so, the one that I want to hear about now. <laughs> After we're right, well, done, once you. you turn off the mic, we'll talk about that. Okay. One. And where can people um, get in touch with you or see the things that you've, that you've done? Uh, TimVandehey.com. Okay, and that's V A N D E H E Y. Very good, yes. All right, very good. And what about Beast Sellers? Uh, BeastSellers.com. Okay, good. Yep. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, take care. Tim's ghostwriting is a little different from ours as personal historians, but there's a lot of overlap and I'm so happy that it came on to share. One of the biggest takeaways for me is the reminder of just how important it is to constantly be improving our interviewing skills. Um, And at some point, I may even do an episode where I share a few excerpts from some of my very earliest interviews back in 2010 um, and compare them to some of uh, some snippets from current ones. Um, I'm not saying that I've got it all figured out, but the difference between the two are, it's pretty huge. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is if you're a new personal historian, I don't want you to be discouraged if your interviews sound a little stumbling and bumbling. Just go out and do more interviews. It's the best way to get better faster. And then come back and let us know how it went. You can leave a comment at thelifestorycoach.com forward slash episode five. That's forward slash episode five. Um, And that's also where you'll find the show notes for today's interview with links to all of the great stuff that we were talking about, including Tim's books and how you can get a hold of him if you want to look him up or look us up on Facebook. And remember, if today's show was helpful, the best way you can return that favor is to leave us a review on iTunes. I'm Amy Woods Butler, personal historian, and your coach for building your own personal history business. Now, go out and save someone's story. (laughs) 